Well, I think the, the, the story behind the exhibition and the conference, how it came about, mm -hmm. really begins with the acquisition by the Ransom Center of these historic photographs from El Salvador from the early period of the conflict in El Salvador in the early 1980s. It was a set of photographs that documented some of the worst human rights abuses that occurred in El Salvador during the, the conflict, but also were influential in raising consciousness in this country at the time and in the debate that constantly was before Congress about whether to renew aid to El Salvador or not. So even though the photographs didn't change how Congress voted, they were pointed to by various advocates who were involved in that conversation. So I think they were very important historically, and it seemed to myself and the other folks who were involved in organizing the conference, Ginny Burnett from the History Department and Latin American Studies, and Karen Engel from the Rappaport Center, that this was an ideal time, taking advantage of the fact that we had the photographs, to look back. It's been more than a decade, it's a decade and a half since the conflict ended, so there's enough time for us to have a kind of historical perspective on, you know, sort of the differences between war and peace and what are still the challenges that are facing El Salvador in the aftermath of the signing of the peace accords. And so, you know, and the fact that it happened to be 15 years, it was kind of like all these things just sort of came together. Right. Um, speaking to something you started to, <laughs> to mention um, about public perception in the United mm -hmm. States of the conflict, um, spending time and living in El Salvador during parts of the Civil War, did you notice any disconnects between the reality that you were witnessing and documenting and the portrayal of the conflict in the U.S. media at the time? I think that one of the most, the most significant differences, I would say, is that, you know, the level on which this conflict affected the lives of ordinary people. I mean, the victims in this conflict were mainly civilians who had nothing to do with the larger political, geopolitical questions. The other thing is that the Salvadoran guerrilla movement was portrayed often in our media, uh, in some of our media at least, and by the government as being a kind of pro-Cuban Soviet, you know, with the Cold War. And so right. things got framed in the sort of Cold War rubric. When you actually got there and were on the ground, you realized that most of the people who were inv even if they were involved in the insurgency, were not motivated by wanting to become Russians or like Russians, and there were no Russians. I never met a Russian or even a Cuban the whole time I was in El Salvador. It was a, it was very much a homegrown grassroots rebellion. People were fighting for the kinds of things that people in our civil rights movement were fighting for, and that's what I felt was really important to try to convey in my photographs, uh, to give folks a sense of what was at stake, what were the things that people really were fighting for, and who were the people who were really becoming, you know, being victimized by the situation. And so what should the appropriate U.S. role be? I think that was sort of, you know, I was always wanting to investigate how was our tax money being spent. I visited an Army training camp that the U U.S. helped fund and was very proud of this training camp. It, you know, there were U.S. advisors there. There were young boys that were 13 years old who had been conscripted. Anyone who was over adolescent age would just be right. inducted, you know. So, so these were the kind of things I thought, you know, people in the U.S. should know about this, too. Parallel to that question um, about how civilians mm -hmm. um, got sucked into the conflict um, and suffered in the conflict, 
and especially uh, young civilians. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, um, you've also documented the ongoing youth violence in Los Angeles and El Salvador um, between um, gang members who were often victims of violence or came from the families who had suffered during the Civil War. How do you think this current situation um, with youth gangs speaks to the question of how to end uh, these cycles of violence? Well, first I want to point out something, which is that, you know, in the aftermath of conflict, there are always challenges. You've got a traumatized population, and of course today we know a lot more. There's been so much more in recent years work done on the emotional uh, effects of violence and trauma on people that we didn't do, you know, during the Second World War, for example, or, you know, or we only thought about perhaps a little bit the people who worked with Vietnam veterans talked about post-traumatic stress syndrome, you know. But now we realize that civilian populations are affected, too, very greatly. But apart from all of that uh, aspect, this was a, a situation where huge numbers of people were displaced. And when they were displaced from the countryside to the cities, that creates a breakdown of community. It creates a breakdown of social networks. And many of those refugees eventually headed to the United States. They left their country as well. So we had this immigration flow into the United States of refugees fleeing the violence in their country. Well, they get to Los Angeles, many of them uh, came to Los Angeles, and they encountered new forms of violence, which were American forms of violence, the gang situation in Los Angeles. So the gangs that are in El Salvador now, although there are many local reasons for that violence sort of taking hold and those, those uh, forms of youth organization taking hold, in a sense also was because of U.S. policies that then deported young people from L.A. back to El Salvador. Those gangs started in L.A. They did not exist in El Salvador during the war when I was a photographer. So I think, you know, you have to think of this on, you know, multiple levels. This is not a, a, a scenario that happens in every conflict all over the world. I would say there are certain patterns uh, though, that we should think about. This gang situation is a very specific thing that happened uh, in particular in Central America. But in the aftermath of conflict, there has to be a way of addressing the issues of injustice and impunity and violence. And one of the problems, I think, that El Salvador faces is that those questions still have not been fully resolved. The human rights abuses that occurred during the war have not really been fully addressed in a, in a sense through the just judicial process. Many of the people who committed those abuses were amnestied under the peace accords. And in the new society, the ability of the police to, to really investigate criminal activity and, and actually bring people to trial is, is, is hampered as well. So there's still a significant level of impunity. And when you don't have a functioning uh, system that people uh, have faith in, in the community, you get retaliatory acts of violence. And that's kind of what has happened in this gang situation. A young person gets murdered. The murder, oh, he's a gang member. So nobody bothers to f figure out, you know, do a homicide investigation right. and arrest the perpetrators. So the rumor goes out who it was, and a rival gang takes retribution. You know, and this is, you see this in our country too, in right. our immigrant communities, but especially in El Salvador, I think that's one of the things that does fuel the situation, and that's specifically on a human rights level. And of course, there are, there are many social factors, institutional and structural marginalization and, and patterns of violence that are, that are causing young people to seek 
their identity or, or some kind of sense of group solidarity through gangs. So the, the reasons are complex. It's not a simple matter. But I think that a lot of w the initial fuel for this was unhealed emotional trauma from the war. Many of the early gang members that I met in Los Angeles were kids who had been former child soldiers or they had witnessed human rights abuses. And the same is true for the young people who joined gangs in El Salvador. And there are also young people in many cases who have parents who live in the U.S. and they're being raised by relatives who don't really care for them. That, that was a, a big thing that happened in the aftermath of the war too. Many people, you know, the able-bodied men and sometimes the women would come to the United States thinking, I'll get a decent job, be able to send the money home so my kid can go to school. And of course, that didn't always happen that way because the relatives left in charge perhaps didn't really care about this child and were not, and the child felt a sense of abandonment by their parent. And so gangs provided some other place to find solace and a way that they could share emotional, uh, these emotional traumas. I remember once a young man said to me, in the gang, it's the only place where we can cry and show our feelings. They have to act tough, showing a tough face usually to the rest of the world. But among themselves, it's kind of a fraternity of pain and suffering, in fact. And that was part of the bond. So does this situation have a kind of message about cycles of violence? I think the message is that these situations are complex. And just signing a peace accord doesn't just fix everything, right? That you have to address many of these other social problems that exist as well. And that certainly the question of impunity is, is very, very important here, I think. Right, right. To, to shift back to the okay. <laughs> to the the exhibition and the mm -hmm. question of reporting on the conflict in the 1980s, um, I'm wondering if you think there are any insights or lessons learned from reporting on the war in El Salvador that are relevant for photojournalists covering today's wars and perhaps for the continuing uh, violence and impunity in El Salvador. I think one of the key things. I mean, there are many things that are different now. We have different technology. The role of the journalist is different, too. I mean, if you look at Iraq, it's much more dangerous. I, you know, I could report on both sides of the war, and it was dangerous. It wasn't, I'm not saying that it wasn't, but it was possible. I don't think it's really as possible to do that. Of course, this is a situation where the United, but even if any Westerner, even a European photographer or uh, reporter, would face problems interacting certainly with the insurgency in Iraq, but also just with ordinary people. They could be kidnapped. Journalists are considered targets <laughs> by actors in civil conflicts today in a way that they were not quite in the same way before. There were always some risks, but it was, it was less. So I don't think there's like some easy, you know, oh, you apply the lessons from one thing to another. But I would say that one of the things that I learned is that it's really important for journalists, for the press, to maintain an interest in a place after the conflict ends. Because the aftermath, the rebuilding, is absolutely, that's the critical time. And that's the time when generally the press shifts its focus to the next dramatic conflict instead of continuing to report on the uh, rebuilding process and what's working and what's not working. I think El Salvador suffered from that tremendously. It was sort of many of the people who were in El Salvador, Bosnia was happening afterward. They sort of moved from Central America and then they went to the next war. 
And so, I mean, the thing I decided to do when I came back to the United States after living in El Salvador was to focus on the immigrant community, and that's how I discovered some of these things. But I think that it was a valuable lesson for me, at least, and I think it's one that I try to share with my students who are journalists, that it's really good to sort of think more in depth when you have expertise in an area to sort of continue with the story and not just move from the drama moment. We could call it like act one. You need to do the follow-up, act two and act three, you know, what happens after. And one of the things that we see clearly and that we know very much now because of the work of psychologists who work with victims of violence and uh, people who have suffered all kinds of traumatic events, not just war, but also criminal, you know, crime and also natural disasters, is that the, the traumatic impact emotionally is every bit as much something that needs to be addressed as a physical injury is. You see an amputee and you say, oh yeah, that person is disabled in some way. But when someone has an emotionally impairment, an emotional impairment is the result, we've given a lot less attention to that. It's kind of stigmatized, no one wants to talk about it. I think post 9-11, part of that taboo, especially in the United States, has begun to, to sort of uh, change. But we really need, I think, as journalists to pay attention to that and to, and to do follow-up stories that report on that angle afterwards. And I think that's one of the, the strong lessons from El Salvador is the need for that kind of reporting.